I just don't think it feels supported. If there was pads, I'd do it. Mm -hmm. um, and if there was one person who could keep time. But I'm not good enough at the instrument to do that. Yeah, but we were. I was keeping time. Sure. It but, was in time. But I wasn't. Correct, I was whatever, like, whatever, I was stuffing little bits up. Bible reading, and then we're going to go to just a bit of a reflection on Revelation. So our reading tonight is from the first chapter of Revelation before the letters. And it goes like this. John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Join me as I pray. Jesus, thank you for the chance to gather. Thank you that even as you are the Alpha and the Omega, the Almighty, yet you call us to be your, your church, your bride, and we get to gather in community in your presence. And we get to stand before you, and we get to speak of you, and we get to learn from you, and we get to delight in you. I pray that you would challenge us tonight uh, and that you would comfort us as you challenged and comforted the churches in Revelation. In Jesus' name, amen. So I really loved hearing the letters earlier um, from Danny and from Kirsten. Um, and a lot of their points have sort of covered what I might do in this sermon, but I'm going to preach it anyway. Uh, so we spent the past two months listening to what Jesus speaks to the churches through the book of Revelation. We've heard of a loveless church, a suffering church, confused, compromised and popular churches, a weary church and finally a lukewarm church in Laodicea. And from Danny, we're reminded that Jesus is urgent to a broken church. Uh, and we're reminded that we're living in a now but not yet, that we get to see some of that consummation of Jesus' plan and of God's big picture coming now and yet there is more to come. And from Kirsten, we're reminded that the Spirit walks among us. I loved that in your letter, thank you. And that we need his help and that nothing is hidden from him. And that's something that really struck out to me or stuck out to me when I was preparing this, uh, is this concept of God who sees. That is El Roy. And that's the phrase meaning God who sees me, a name given to God by Hagar, alone and pregnant in the desert. This is a God who sees us in our parched places. But this is not just a God who looks at us when he feels bad for us. Nor is this just a cursory oversight. Sometimes I think we see God as if he were a human and we're ants. And perhaps he pays as much attention to us as we do to ants, which is not really much at all, uh, unless they're getting in our way or they're stealing our food or they're messing with our plants. But actually, <laughs> Jesus is much more involved with us than that. He's the one who gets right down into our ant world who becomes human himself and who looks us in the eye. This is God who sees. He is invested in us. And he knows us all intimately. He sees our joys and our sorrows. 
our temptations and our victories, our secret sins and our shameful fears. And yet he does not flee, does not turn in repulsion or disgust. He calls out to us, follows us, pursues us. As you might remember from previous sermons, Jesus often spoke to characteristic, to compliment, criticism, command and commitment to the churches that John wrote to. Two churches, the suffering and weary churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia, he didn't criticize, he only encouraged. And only Laodicea did he not compliment or commend at all. And that's a really intense letter to listen to. And yet, even in this intense letter to the Laodiceans, he's speaking to them to warn them. This is not just God speaking judgment or rage and then turning his back on his people in frustration. It is a rebuke and an invitation to repentance, the longing call of a God to his church to open their door to him who knocks. Those whom I love, he says, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. He fully sees and fully knows and fully loves his church. And that is a confronting thing to stand with, to know ourselves fully seen and fully known and fully loved. To quote a poem, because you probably know I love poems. When we think of how Jesus looks at us, it is a charming, fearful, comforting thing on first glance. It makes me feel nice to feel that loved. On second glance, I am terrified, confronted, vulnerable, and on that sacred, set-apart, often forgotten third glance, it is the calmest, safest place I could be in the days of Christ. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I wonder what he would say to our church. What commendation and what rebuke? What does he see when he looks at Q Baptist, when he looks at Night Church? One of the consistent elements of these letters that I've loved is how specific they were to the churches and context they were going to. To Philadelphia, rocked by an earthquake, he spoke of being an unshakable pillar in the permanent temple of God. To Laodicea, the medical center in between the hot and cold springs, he spoke of being lukewarm and of desperately needing healing. And I'm stunned by the intimacy of that knowledge. Jesus knowing not just their joys and sins, but also their cultures, their slang, their prides, their history and humor. And while he always remained the same, he spoke to them in ways that they could understand. He knows too, intimately, our context, our language and our nuance. God knows about our current political and social environment. He knows about TikTok and Facebook and Snapchat and Instagram and all the others that I haven't even caught up with. He knows what we are struggling with and what we are rejoicing in. He knows what lit means and on fleek. I just figured it out and then it was gone and now there's new words and I don't know. But he knows what they mean and I'm thankful for that. And he speaks into our contexts, but he also calls us to look beyond them, to look up beyond just our world to his great story, not our own little blip in history. So what might he be saying to the church in our current setting? What does he delight in and encourage us in? What does he sustain us through? What might he rebuke us of? Is there anything in our church or personal lives that might make him want to spit us out of his mouth? Is there anything in our church or personal lives that he might want to take off our shoulders? How incredible, confronting, comforting to be fully seen and known 
and loved by this God. Now we're going to try a little exercise now. Uh, I just want everyone to turn to their neighbor and we're going to do some eye contact. Uh, and this is going to make some people uncomfortable and that's going to be okay because it's, sometimes it's uncomfortable to be seen by the people and sometimes it's uncomfortable to be seen by God. But when you are looking at someone in the eyes, <laughs> say this to them, God sees you. All right, take a moment, let's do it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that nervous laughter to mean that, that people have at least tried to look in each other's eyes. All right, let's bring it back. Should have known. <laughs> Once you get started talking in night church, there's no bringing it back. All right, so we know this is a God who sees, and sometimes the extent to which he sees makes us uncomfortable and is confronting. And that's great. It's okay to be uncomfortable and confronted by a God who sees, because he also loves us and he also pursues us. But how do these letters fit with the rest of Revelation? So we've, we've heard about how God speaks to the churches, and then you can jump to the next chapter, and it feels really disconnected with all this language of beasts and horns, of fiery bowls and rolled up scrolls, of six, 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 and trumpets and horses and double-edged swords. But really, they are all part of the same story, and they're written for the same purpose. We can find more clarity if we look at the genre of this book of Revelation. And certainly, we don't have time for a full exegesis. Nick gave me 10 minutes, um, and I would love to dive into a full exegesis of Revelation, but I'm not going to do that to you tonight. So let's just talk, look, take a look at the, the genre of the book. Revelation fits into a mixed combination of two genres, that of prophecy and apocalyptic text. So the former, prophecy, we see a lot of in the Old Testament. We know the prophets. And God sent his prophets to speak to his people about how they are living their lives, to bring them encouragement or rebuke, and to warn them of what might happen if they live unrepentant or unchanged lives. But he also used his prophets to comfort his people so that even when awful things happened, even when they had to live with the consequences of their own or others' sin, they could be certain that God knew and was with them through it. He was not unknowing and he had not abandoned them. Now the other genre, apocalyptic text, was really popular uh, around the time that the Old Testament was being written. Um, and apocalyptic means unveiling or revealing, which is where we get the name Revelation. Uh, and basically, the point was that they used dramatic imagery to call the reader to look at the broader spiritual reality of their world. As a genre, Jewish apocalyptic literature flourished in the years following the Old Testament canon because these were the silent years when Israel felt abandoned and forgotten by God. And its focus was largely to remind readers that God saw them and that the future would be better. Now might be awful, but the future will get better. And we can see some of this writing in the Old Testament as well, in Ezekiel, in Daniel, and Zechariah. And if you've read those, you might actually recognize some of the same imagery and symbolism as used in Revelation. Now, the book of Revelation uses a combination of these two genres. Jesus is clearly telling his church that he sees them. He deeply knows their hearts, their sins, 
and burdens and he comforts them that they are not forgotten. But he also uses the dramatic symbolism of apocalyptic texts, the artistic license and poetic imagery to comfort them that there is a broader spiritual battle at hand, that there is a reason for their experience and that there is a consequence to their behavior and to the behavior of the rest of the world. But instead of just a promise that life will get better sometime in the future, now might suck, but it will pick up, John, used by Jesus, speaks of a hope that already exists, the now but not yet, a victory that is already won. And in doing so, he turns the apocalyptic genre on its head. So while the second half of Revelation uses some pretty different literary tools and they can be confronting to us in our modern era, it is emphasizing exactly the same themes as the letters to the churches. It is emphasizing a warning against false teaching. It is speaking of living moral lives. It is speaking of being part of God's church and of the comfort that Jesus will bring his church home. And what does this mean for us? How do we use the book of Revelation today? Well, first off, we have to resist the urge to turn a literary tool into a treasure map to show us God's secret plan for the future. And as humans, we love rules and we love roadmaps, and I get it, and God gets it, and we often want to turn Revelation into one, but that's actually a misuse of the text. It's not why it was written or how it was written. Secondly, as we've seen in the past, tech, the past weeks, we can learn individually and as a church from the letters to the churches. We know that God sees us where we are. He knows our hearts, our joys, and our struggles. And he calls us to look beyond them, to let him carry the burden, and to know that his victory is complete. This is the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, who sees and who knows and who is victorious. And he is grieved, but he is not taken by surprise, by war, by grief, by pandemics or job loss or even death. He comforts us through his word and through his spirit. Now, who here has heard of Corrie ten Boom? The hiding place, right? Yes, yeah, there's a few people. Great, thank you. I can't see, I can sort of see hands waving. Now, I'm just going to find my spot. Here we go. So I wanted to share um, an excerpt from a book by Corrie ten Boom. If you haven't heard of her, she was a woman who, with her father and her sister and other members of their community, um, protected and saved the lives of, I think, hundreds of Jews who were escaping the Nazi invasion of Holland. Uh, And in the end, as a consequence of this work that they were doing, they were taken by the Nazis, they were put in concentration camps. Her father died, her sister died, but Corrie survived. And she came out and she wrote this book, Uh, And she then travelled and preached on forgiveness. And I'd highly recommend reading The Hiding Place, her book, but also looking up some of her other sermons. But she has a particular passage in her book where she talks about a picture she has of the future. So she has a, a sort of dream or vision of herself and her father and her sister in a cart and they're being taken away across their town and they're not allowed to get out of the cart. They want to, but they can't. And she's distressed by this and she comes downstairs to talk to her sister And she says this. Over coffee standing at the stove, I told Betsy what I had seen. Am I imagining things because I'm frightened? But it wasn't like that. It was real. Oh, Betsy, was it a kind of vision? Betsy's finger traced a pattern on the wooden sink, worn smooth by generations of ten booms. I don't know, she said softly. 
But if God has shown us bad times ahead, it is enough for me that he knows about them. That's why he sometimes shows us things, you know, to tell us that this too is in his hands. And I love Betsy's summation of the role of prophecy. This is in line with how prophecy was often used in the Old Testament and how it's used today. The Spirit speaks to us of what we are going through and potentially what might happen in the future, but often as comfort and as encouragement. Corrie, Betsy and their father were not forgotten. The persecuted church is not forgotten and neither are we. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As Tom said, we're going to spend the coming weeks looking at the Spirit that is the life of God in us and in the church. So let's begin by taking some time now to pray together, asking God what he would say to us as a church. Now, there are three points up there. Um, Can I encourage you to spend time on all of them, particularly the last one? Um, Because I think we can often, as, as the two girls who shared their letters focused on or reflected on, we can often get stuck in our own comfort. Uh, can I invite you to be challenged by the Spirit to move beyond our comfort zone? So let's gather with those around us and pray, and the band will come up when it's time to finish.